Hello, welcome and kumusta. My name is Hao and I am your occupational therapist and welcome to my podcast entitled OT Conversations. This is a podcast about occupational therapy and any other topics relating to the field be it medical foundations or philosophical foundations, some of my personal and professional opinions and point of view. I am hoping that through this podcast, I'll be able to help out occupational therapy students and clinicians to navigate their way through their clinical practice involving occupational therapy. Today we're going to talk about neurological evaluation of the patient whom you are going to do rehabilitation on. So when it comes to neurological examination from experience, neuroassessment, neuroretraining, these are the very common things that therapists would like to learn about. So when we're talking about neurological examination, there are a few parts of this. The first one would be the person's mental status. Neurological evaluation would involve assessment of cranial nerves. You would have to assess the person's motor function, like their tone, their power, uh, adventitial movements, and some of the reflexes that they have. And you will have to check their sensory function, particularly their pain, their temperature, vibration, proprioception or position sense, stereognosis, two-point discrimination. And you will be checking their cerebellar function. And lastly, would be their gait function. So these are the few things that you need to be very familiar with. And once you know of these um, six areas, then you will be equipped to do neurological evaluation, which in turn would lead you to be better at defining your interventions. Let's start talking about mental status and cognitive function. And this is in relation to neurological dysfunction. So the uh, Bedside cognitive and mental testing, most of the time, if you are facing the person for the first time, you would have to do a bedside cognitive and mental status testing. And when you're doing this, when you're checking the mental status, this is quite extensive because it's almost difficult for you to do it and just trying to remember everything that needed to be checked. But what you can do is uh, there are uh, things that you need to remember. And I came across this um, mnemonic which states uh, como estas, C-O-M-O-E-S-T-A-S. It's like saying hello, como estas, or como esta, como estas. And these are the mnemonic for the the cognitive uh, evaluation. Meaning C stands for cognitive functions. So you can check the cognitive functions. Which, uh, what are these functionings? What are they, are they uh, calculating? Can they do concentration? What's their insight like? What's their judgment? So that's one thing. When you go and see the person, just what's, what's the overview? You go and see the person and uh, what do they look like? 
What's their appearance? What's their level of consciousness? Are they moving? What's their attitude? So that's an overview. And then you can check for uh, memory, which stands for most recent memory and most remote memory. You can check for their orientation, where they are, what's uh, the place that they're in, and around what time of the day is it now. Check for emotion. Uh, uh, what's their affect? Affect is an affect is an external manifestation of the mood that they're in. Is it flat? Are they smiling? Do is the what the the tone of their voice? Does it sound like they're angry? So if I'm not mistaken, I probably have a podcast on the earlier versions of these affect and understanding affect. If not, I will post it uh, very soon. You can go and check for their speech. Are they fluent? Is it making sense? Can they comprehend? What about their thoughts? What's the processes? What's the content of their thought? What are their perceptual disturbances? Are they delirious? Perceptual uh, disturbances, are they seeing things? And uh, you can, um, uh, attention, you can check attention. You can check for the abstract thinking, their recall, their intelligence, and then anything else that you may have forgotten. So S stands for S, uh, something else. Anything else, like a special particular movement, for example. So anything that you have noticed that you might... uh, uh, you might be able to pick up when you're seeing a patient because there are always surprises. All right. So again, as an overview, when you're checking the mental status, you check what, what their cognitive function is, have an overview of what they look like, what's their memory, what's their orientation, their emotion, their speech, thoughts, attention, and something else and anything else uh, for that matter. Now, when somebody is um, impaired, for example, and it is likely because of, uh, you know, one cause of an impairment would possibly be encephalopathy, uh, but you can have uh, symptoms possible. One is metabolic encephalopathy. I mean, metabolic being when there is something going on in the the person's... uh, electrolytes and there are imbalances it's bound to affect somebody's level of thinking so that would have been a metabolic one or and if there are byproducts of lots of other things then it can be a toxic encephalopathy so these are the most common causes of the changes of the mental status now the reason why these things could happen could mean well toxic one because of a recreational or because of uh, a prescribed drug intoxication like i said in, uh, electrolyte imbalance when somebody is had uh, or recovering uh, from operation or when somebody is acutely uh, impaired or acutely ill somebody's had a hypoxia somebody and you would have hypoxia possibly because of a vascular concern of a heart problem heart attack 
And then when you are ill and then your digestive system is affecting you, like a liver disease, for example, these are the potential causes of problems with uh, encephalopathy. Now, attention and cognition, and these are the most sensitive indicators of metabolic encephalopathy. But it's always difficult to evaluate this if you don't know what the pre-morbid personality or pre-morbid intellect of the person is. That's why a good part of our assessment is all about finding out what was the baseline function of the person. You would always assume that everything is okay. Um, And because OT involves asking or being involved about understanding their baseline functioning, so that is an area for us to have a look at and understand what their character, understand what their personality is. Now, under these circumstances, the defects in orientation or the grasp of situation, again, these are most sensitive indicators of a problem. Okay, so what's happening? They get delirious, they get concerned, what's happening? They just don't know what's been happening and that's the grasp of situation or their orientation is impaired. So keep an eye on the, again, with with, with um, uh, encephalopathy or where the, the brain is affected or the functioning. So a person's attention and cognition will be impaired and uh, it is important for, and also, so attention and cognition will be impaired, and then the grasp of situation and the orientation will be impaired. And once you've identified that these things are impaired, immediately you can make your intervention plan, you know. And for my plan in critical care, I call it the uh, restorative program or component restorative program where you are restoring cognitive components. So that's what it would entail. So you can ask the person specific questions, very simple questions, like what time of the day is it? What's the day? What's the reason why they are in the hospital? How long did it take for them to... uh, How long have they been in the hospital? What's the reason they've been in? So there are a few questions. So that early intervention and early session is actually very important because you may be talking to a person, but what you're actually doing is you're gauging them as well uh, while, You know when they are making their responses. Now, the disorientation to people and place is sometimes, um, you know... Uh, is is rarely observed in structural disease and it can be a sign of non-organic illness or hysteria as well. Again, if somebody is not disorientated, they're aware and they know where they are, but something's not right. Okay? What's wrong? You are aware. You know what's happening. You're orientated. The person is... uh, um, is is orientated and to a person and the place, but they don't know what's happening. So that may be something else. So, uh, but equally, it is a problem. 
Uh, so keep an eye on those things. Now, sometimes a person would be presenting to you, and uh, you go, you are in the hospital, and they're they're elderly, and sometimes you know dementia. Somebody might have a dementia uh, as well. Um, in 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 association or alongside their condition. So what is this? So dementia is a very popular one. And I remember uh, a good few years ago, dementia and Alzheimer's and aging is the main, 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 is a very popular area. And there are lots of researches that are being done there. Uh, I think nowadays the focus is more on frailty. There was a po- moment where falls was the main focus. Now it's frailty. Now it's delirium and frailty, uh, which was an offshoot of dementia. So it is a clinical state that is characterized by significant loss of function in uh, multiple cognitive domains. And uh, this is not due to an impaired level of arousal. So the, the person is awake. They are alert, but a good number of cognitive function is impaired. Now, it does not necessarily mean uh, that there is any specific reasons why the person has this. It's not synonymous with a progressive cause, and it is. it does not necessarily mean that it is irreversible, because nowadays there are some trials, there are some... Um, some medications and and interventions, medical interventions that are slowing these things down. So if, if somebody wants to diagnose this, it requires uh, serial examinations over the course of time. And what you want to do as a clinician, as an advanced practitioner, is you'd want to document a decline of intellectual function or a single evaluation of cognitive function that evidences that the higher level of intellectual function, um, that there was a higher level of intellectual function in the past. So so if they were very sharp when they were a bit younger and all of a sudden it just declines, so that's one of those things that takes you to that diagnosis of potentially this person has dementia. Now, deliriums, psychiatric problems, and other focal um, problems in the central nervous systems, like, for example, stroke, it needed to be um, excluded. So, delirium, they come to you, they are delirious, they are elderly. Please don't be quick in saying that they are dementia or they have dementia. So, maybe just a quick problem, they might just have some problems. Um, and, you know, during the course of their problems that led them to get to the hospital, they might build up that they are becoming confused. So you have to um, to exclude those things. But luckily, as an occupational therapist or as a therapist, you don't have to do that. Somebody will make that for you. Somebody will make that decision or diagnosis for you. And regardless of what the diagnosis is, your intervention will actually be the same because you'll be working on the symptoms and the functional implications of those problems. Now, another scenario is that you will come across with a person 
and they will be presenting with some speech problem. So you don't know whether it is a problem of aphasia or is it a problem of this dysarthria. So what are the differences between the two? Well, the difference is that aphasia is a problem of language, where dysarthria is a problem of articulation. So this difficulty, arthria, is articulation. So if somebody has a dysarthria, they'd be able to um, uh, name, they might be... They might be able to repeat. The fluency is good. Comprehension is good and it's normal. Now, additionally, the patient can also read without any errors as well. So when somebody has had a dysarthria. So one way to check if somebody... So they are... Say you're faced with a patient and they're not communicating. What you can do is ask them to write something down of what they want to say. And if they can write what they want to say clearly, then they do not have a aphasia. It's likely a severe dysarthria. That's why I am not a believer of the uh, uh, um, you know writing things down sometimes for stroke patients. Yes, maybe. If it is a dysarthria, then yes. But what will happen is, you know, these picture images that people are, uh, uh, you know, putting in before. Uh, I remember that there were like emojis and people are trying to communicate with emojis. And it's very difficult because these emojis are maybe partly universal, but it's uh, uh, it depends on the person. So the specificity of these emojis in terms of using it as a communication is really a problem. So I, I've had concerns about that. So when they say a aphasia-friendly form and all it was is like a picture or a form filled with multiple emojis, that is very difficult because these are visual perceptual challenges for the person. So if you're assessing for aphasia for the first time, what are the things that we want to see what are the possible abnormalities that we could be seeing so if you are somebody's had aphasia so the question is what are the abnormalities that we could be seeing so one it would a person will have difficulty naming the things and this is called anomia so when you see the person present some items and ask them to name it and if they cannot name it, ask name the object and ask them to point to the object that you are presenting them. So that's one. So it's anomia is one. Is the aphasia fluent or non-fluent? What does this mean? So fluency, it refers to a normal speech rhythm and output. So that's the fluency. And then use of empty word and incorrect uh, words, for example... So when the, when a person is using empty words or using incorrect words, like for example, coon for a car, um, you can have like syntactical errors. It can be associated with fluent speech as well. So in non-fluent aphasias, so speech is more uh, generated with a great deal of effort. So they really can't generate in, 
I've I've read some texts where they say speech is constipated, you know, so they cannot get the words out. So this is non-fluent; they cannot get the words out. And non-fluent aphasias are generally associated with a problem in the the cerebrum, and particularly the motor context. So this is Broca's aphasia. So the fluent aphasia, on the other hand, are believed to be more of a receptive. So it's a problem with the posterior uh, uh, fissures as well. And uh, this is more into uh, on in reference to the position of the lesion. So as you can see, on the anterior side of the the motor uh, the speech area, that would be the motor area. The same with movement. And on the posterior side of the Rolandic fissure in the brain, that is now the sensory area as well. So that will correspond to vernix aphasia. So talking about vernix, there are different types of aphasia that can help you define them or label them. So when you're seeing a person and they're not expressing themselves, they have aphasia. So it helps for you to understand or describe what they are. So the first one is the Broca's or the motor aphasia. So in here, the person would have abnormal naming, then they could be non-fluent, but they have a normal comprehension and they have abnormal repetition. So motor aphasia, they can repeat. Okay, they may have difficulty repeating. They may have difficulty, but their comprehension is normal. Yeah. Vernix aphasia, so expressive dysphasia, they could have abnormal naming. They are fluent. There could be abnormal comprehension and there is an abnormal repetition as well. All right. So vernix aphasia, they are fluent. So the difference between the expressive aphasia or receptive aphasia, they are fluent, uh, whereas the Broca's aphasia, their comprehension is normal. So Broca's, vernix Global aphasia, so in global aphasia, you have abnormal naming. They're non-fluent, abnormal comprehension, and abnormal repetition. Everything is impaired, right? Global, both receptive and expressive, so that's global. The other one which we seldom use is conduction aphasia. And conduction aphasia here, there is an abnormal, it could be normal or abnormal or abnormal naming, the fluency is good, there is normal comprehension, but they have difficulty with repetition. So just the conduction, right? So fluent, normal comprehension, but the naming is impaired, so that's conduction. So when they just have a slight impairment on the naming, so it's not a total anomia, but every now and again they would have problems in getting the right words. Uh, and uh, then that would be conduction aphasia. And like I said, anomia is they have abnormal naming, they are fluent, normal comprehension, and normal repetition. Okay? So there you go, guys. Have a read through this, look out these words, Broca's, Vernix, global conduction, and anomia. When it comes to efficiency of communication, does the severity of aphasia correlate with problems with communication? So, it does significantly correlate with uh, communication 
difficulty, you know, the aphasia and how severe it is. But there are other things that you need to consider when we want to maximize a person's communication skill, particularly of the aphasic patient. So we want to know what the impairment is in training. We need to adapt to the patient as well. So it's already a challenge. So yes, the question is, is there a relationship with this aphasia problem and their communication? Yes. The more severe aphasia is, the more problematic it is when we are trying to communicate with the patient. But when we're doing the retraining, we need to train the family to compensate. And there are many ways on how we can compensate. So when we're doing a phase uh, evaluation with pa uh, patients who's having aphasia, uh, it does include a thorough neuropsych uh, assessment. What This is to differentiate. Is it apraxia or is it aphasia? Or is it visual constructive difficulties? Is it inattention? Okay, so that's why, although these are communication impairment, it is very much linked and it has a significant effect on the cognition. So another thing, we're talking about some of the mental status or some of the symptoms that could be seen as a problem of mental status, which is in fact not really, but it, the symptom is, is, is mixing. It just jumbles everything up. This condition or this situation called unilateral neglect. And neglect, unilateral neglect, by definition, it is a lack of orientation or responses to the stimuli presented unilaterally. So neglect, when you're talking about neglect, we cannot diagnose this unless the primary sensory or motor abilities required to sense or orient the particular stimulus are intact. Yeah. So they're they really have it's a very severe perceptual problem like sensation and movement is, is intact, and yet they're not attending to it. So it can be unimodal, like just a visual neglect, or it can be multimodal, meaning they have difficulty performing complex tasks, such as dressing and eating, and this is when the patient fails to cover the, the, the impaired side. Hemineglect is most commonly associated with uh, right-sided problem. So if somebody has had a stroke, and particularly the right stroke, right CVA, so keep an eye on this because these are typical symptoms of it. Or when you're doing your thorough assessment and evaluation and uh, the left side of the body is impaired, so keep an eye on this neglect as well. So it can happen mostly on the right side, but it also happens when on, on the left side of the stroke as well. So this one is a one of the prognosticating factor for a poor functional recovery. If the neglect is present and could not resolve, then it is most likely that the person will be um, reliant on their personal care, on which case you would need to do supportive interventions. So if you remember the interventions that I mentioned to you before, RAMPs, Restore, Alter, Modify, Prevent and Support, 
So you may have to do that. So how do you check? What are the techniques on how you can assess neglect and inattention? Apart from checking the visual field, because visual field is just visual field. Yeah, so visual field is just a visual field. Um, how do you test it if you're able to sit the person out? So there are many ways that you can check inattention or neglect. You can do line by section. Uh, and in here, you ask the patient to mark the center of five horizontal lines. Each is presented separately on a sheet of paper. So there are five horizontal lines um, you know, on a sheet of paper. And then you get them to bisect the central part of that. The other one, uh, or actually the line bisection is five lines all stacked together and then the person needs to just draw a line at the central part of that. The other one is line cancellation and here you present the patient with a single sheet of paper and there may be 20 lines of varying orientation. So they could be sideways, they could be upright and you ask the person uh, to bisect those lines or cancel those lines. So letter cancellation is another way of doing that. And you would instruct the patient to mark all the A's on a sheet of paper. And uh, there should be eight A's on a sheet, okay, and four on each side with 70 distractor letters like DLFR, for example. So an, a letter cancellation is quite uh, uh, specific if you want to obtain that tool, which I haven't come across for a long time because uh, everybody is just, it's so easy to do, it's so easy to replicate that people have been doing versions of this. But really, the letter cancellation involves... Um, having uh, to cancel a letter. I don't know why it has to be A. If it's a standardized thing, so whoever invented it, they're the ones that came up with the standardized way of doing it. So it's A. There are eight A's all scattered around the pages, you know, amidst the 70 distractor images. Another one to do is a clock construction. So you want them to place the number as they would appear in a clock face and they would have to outline the circle and then the numbers as well. So you can see that when you're doing the uh, standardized tests like MOCA, for example, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, these are the clock face, the clock drawing is already there. And uh, with these tests, you know, hopefully it should help you do um, the uh, or establish more uh, in terms of the challenges of cognition and you'd be able to rule out some perceptual problems and there you go so there you go so it's cognitive or mental status and cognitive function so we've spoken about that as part of the neurological evaluation and uh, and I'm sure I have had a discussion about some nerve uh, evaluation as well and some sensory evaluation as well so the one thing that we need to do next would be at some point is motor um, evaluation and I think I've discussed cerebellar testing as well all right until next time guys
If you enjoyed this podcast, talk to your friends and colleagues about it. Like it, subscribe, share, and do what you can to appease whatever algorithm that is at play. I am but your humble clinician, albeit with years of experience, I have very little understanding of this digital world. So if you have any questions or if you have topics that you want me to talk about, drop me an email. It's riot.conversations at gmail.com. Just remember guys, anything you do matters and has an outcome. Until next time, bye!